Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Netflix's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and I'm happy to be joined by my friend Maya to talk about this one. Maya, good to have you back. Good to be back, Josh. Yeah, I'm excited to have Maya to talk about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom because she's fairly well-versed in theater and English literature and, and things of that nature, which I'm uh, more of a novice on. But I uh, did my research a little bit for this movie, so I'm not going to sound lost myself. But as I said, it's the newest movie from Netflix. It is directed by George C. Wolfe, adapted from by Ruben Santiago Hudson from the August Wilson play Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. The play was written in 1982. The movie stars Viola Davis as Gertrude Ma Rainey, who was uh, one of the earliest generations of blues singers. Uh, she was from the South and got her start singing throughout that region but eventually signed a record deal with Paramount that brought her to Chicago to do a lot of different recordings of her songs. The play and the movie focus on a specific recording session that took place in Chicago in the late 1920s. Uh, Ma Rainey has, a, has her own band that has a recording session set up at this, uh, at this studio, and her band uh, includes a guitarist slash trombonist named Cutler, played by Coleman Domingo, a bass player named that goes by Slow Drag, played by Michael Potts, a pianist named Toledo, played by Glenn Thurman, and a trumpet player named Levy, played by the late Chadwick Boseman. Uh, Levy has his sights on starting his own band and playing some new music that he wrote that he's trying to sell to both uh, Ma's manager, Irvin, as well as the head of the studio they were recording at, whose name is Mel Sturdivant. And there's a lot of tension that arises out of uh, Levy trying to do his own thing. The people that run this studio that have their own prerogatives, Ma uh, has her own interests, and they all kind of clash and tensions kind of build throughout the course of this day and the movie slash play. Uh, Maya, I guess the first thing I want to ask you before we even get started is whether it be this source material or other plays, did you have a decent uh, level of familiarity with August Wilson prior to watching this movie? Because I am a pretty novice, like I said before, I'm a bit of a novice. I've read Fences as part of a, a college theater class I took, but beyond that, didn't have a whole lot of familiarity with them. So what was your level of knowledge going into this about whether it be August Wilson, this play, or this time period? Yeah, so when I was in college, I actually majored in English literature, and I did a lot of um, work with theater. So I read Fences, I read Jitney. Uh, I don't think I read Marini's Black Bottom, but I'm you know, very familiar with his Pulitzer Prize-winning work mm -hmm. and his impact on theater as a whole, especially you know, telling black stories in um, you know, on Broadway, which is something that had been underrepresented at the time where he sort of made his ascent, but his popularity just sort of took it over. And I find it fantastic that, you know, the show is also directed by a very famous Broadway director, uh, George C. Wolfe, um, who directed Angels in America, um, Millennium Comes in, Perestroika on Broadway, and he won a Tony Award for that. So I think that, you know, Marini's Black Bottom, is it's meant for the theater goer, even if, you know, the general audience doesn't know it. Yeah, and I guess – so I, I saw the movie Fences a couple years ago, I should say, on top of uh, – that starred Denzel Washington, who also produced Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Viola Davis won an Oscar in Fences, uh, so oh, but some ties to that work also because uh, Denzel Washington, like I said, also you know he directed and produced Fences and produced this. Uh, but one thing I want to ask before we get into the actual – production of this this film production of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is do you ever as someone that's been around theater a little more than me and has probably seen your fair share of film adaptations of stage plays or musicals or whatnot uh what do you generally 
I guess this is a broad question, but I am curious if you have feelings whenever you see a beloved play brought to the screen. Because that's one of the things I've heard a lot by uh, in just reading about this film is people, uh, if there's even a criticism, and I feel like it's a common criticism whenever a play is turned into a movie is that, oh, it still feels like a play. Uh, do you like have feelings on that in general? Are you just happy when a production you like just you get to see it on a big screen, or do you think there's some things that can make certain play adaptations stand out above others when they are translated to the screen? So it feels like more than something than just people sitting in a room talking. I so what I find very interesting is a lot of people actually have, and I've heard the similar criticism of seeing something that was originally on the stage brought to the screen and having the criticism of it being too similar to watching, you know, a live theater show. Hmm. And one of the beauties of the the direction of this movie that I found is that you actually can sort of see in your head where they were, um, I guess, staging the play and how it would be staged because there's not really – it's taken place in, um, you know, in the recording studio. It's very easy to sort of have a set that way. And there are even some very clever, you know, editing scenes where you can sort of see them move from room to room similar that they would in an actual theater production. But – as somebody who's such a theater goer myself, I, I kind of like those elements of sort of bringing it to life while still staying true to the source material, which I believe this this movie very much did. And I, I remember when the last five years movie came out a couple of years ago, there were some people who said this is only meant for people who like Broadway. And I found that to be a very quizzical comment. Because is, that, is that the Anna Kendrick movie? That was the Anna Kendrick See, movie I, with Jeremy I, I, Jordan. I love Anna Kendrick, but I've actually never seen that movie. It's one of her few ones I haven't seen. It is. I A lot of people have um, you know, very interesting criticisms about that show because it tells a story. Um, obviously, we're not going to you know delve into that, but it tells a story of a couple getting together and breaking up. But her story is told from the end of the marriage to the beginning, mm-hmm. and his is told from the beginning of the, the relationship to the end of the marriage. Oh. So they meet in the middle at the end, which is when they get married. Personally speaking, a lot of people find that to be a little bit kitschy. I think it's, you know, it's clever, kitschy. I think embracing the kitschiness is something that a lot of people do on the stage that I'm going to say more normal moviegoers uh, can't stand, <laughs> but I am a fan of it. And and with this show in particular, I think the importance was basically telling three different things. Number one, the story of, you know, somebody who legitimately lived, Mara Rainey, and um, how even though she at the first appearance seemed to be a very difficult, you know, hard headed, stubborn woman at the end of the day, she was right. And basically just showing the, um, the disparity between how, um, her manager and the producer see her as basically a cash cow versus as somebody who has talent, has a story to tell. Number two, it's really just telling the story of the band and how, you know, they, they sort of are dealing with not only Ma Rainey, but with, you know, Levy. You, you kind of started going where I was going to go anyway and talking about that side of the movie and our impressions of her. I didn't really have anything else I was personally going to add as far as the stage to screen aspect of it because, mm-hmm. quite frankly, I don't know enough about them how, to, how the mechanics of making movies work – function to uh, to really know how to make it feel that much different i mean yeah you could do more tracking shots throughout that building and that would feel like something that you're not going to necessarily get if you're just watching a stage play but at the same time i i i I don't really i feel like that would 
it, it would almost feel too obvious to do that. And the only real criticism I have of it in that regard is because, like, as long as the writing still is good and its adaptation and the performances are good, I'm still going to be into it, even if it's like, yeah, you can see why this is a play. It's people talking. Uh, and it's people monologuing, which is, well, I think is something that happens a lot in this movie that a lot of people who are normal theater goers get really, really sick of because no real conversations involve, you know, three minute long monologues that are clearly priming people up for the Oscars. Well, that, well, yeah, yeah. And that, well, and that, well, the thing is, that's still a part of plays, isn't it? You know, I feel like, is it still very a part of much right? So it's like, I mean, I, Oscars, Tony's, whatever, but they're, the only thing is, I feel like if you're in a, I mean, maybe it's more of an issue because I'm watching. We're watching on this on Netflix during a pandemic, and we're at our houses, and it's easier to get distracted than if you're in a movie theater. But I also think if you're watching a play, the monologue's not going to be as much of an issue because there is nothing else to focus on. And not, not. I think this movie did a pretty good job of keeping my attention. It's, it was like I wasn't looking at my phone a ton or anything like that. But every now and then, I'd be in the middle of one of those monologues. And I'd be like, wait, how did I get, how did, I forgot what, what led to this? What, what, what got him on this thing talking about his, his mom being raped when he was eight years old or, or this guy talking about this priest, uh, taking a train from Tallahassee to, uh, Atlanta or wherever it was. Uh, th- there was just moments like that. I was like, wait, wh- why, why are we doing, why are we here? This is really good acting. And I would think that, and then I'd have to rewind and it'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And that was maybe a benefit of it being on Netflix, but maybe something I only had to do because I was watching on Netflix, but I could always go back and catch myself and track everything. And, and you know what? When it comes to a play that you really only have uh, two acts in order to get a story across versus a movie where there's nuances and subtleties where you can actually really understand a character, you have three things kind of working for you when you're on the stage. Number one, physicality. It's very obvious, and you have to be a little bit almost overdoing it in order to bring physicality to the stage. Ironically, um, Pedro Pascal talks about that in The Mandalorian, that that's how he's able to really bring his character alive is because he has um, you know, a stage background. Number two, you have the writing and you have the directing. Um, So you need to sort of have the two of them flow into each other very well in order to tell the story of the character in the amount of time that you have while at the same time drawing the audience into what is going to be foreshadowed in the future. And number three, what you have is you have basically the way that the characters kind of align with each other. And what these monologues have the ability to do is to bring the audience and the characters you know, alike into sort of the, the, the deep subconscious of the, of the character. So that way you sort of have a clue into what's happening and all of that flows in very well together to sort of bring you, I, I guess this, invite you into the show and movies when that's happening, there's so much happening at the same time because you're kind of, you don't get to experience every atmosphere. You just have everything kind of fixated onto your eyes monologuing sort of can have people have ADD moments because exactly like you said you don't exactly know how they got there but from a writing standpoint especially with you know the the person who wrote this um the screenplay it's his first time really writing a movie I, I don't know if you saw that in the history as well he's never written a movie before I missed that no yeah, he's never written a movie before. He did the teleplay for another movie, which is also, I think, was done by the director, George C. Wolf. And and I would I think he really did a good job as seeing true to the source material, which I think was their objective this entire time. What you're doing is you're bringing August Wilson's play to life. You're not trying to make an adaptation of it. Yeah, I mean, again, I had not read this one. I'd only read Fences, but I, I, I'd imagine they hewed pretty close to the spirit of what August Wilson was going for, because as you kind of started to touch on before, I think the big theme I took away from this is basically, you know, 
how how black people probably weren't haven't been as compensated for their art as they should be and that's a that's a more simple way of putting it because so much more goes into that but i feel like all of these different monologues that we're discussing which as you say uh maybe they can get a little tiresome in some plays i think if you really go back and listen closely to a lot of them it it, it all basically kind of ties together in this entire movie and I think that they do a really good job overall in the writing of this play of uh, kind of bringing it, br- bringing everything full circle. Uh, the thing that really popped out to me when I went back and watched it again was when the Toledo character played by uh, Glenn Turman, he gives a speech about uh, vegetable stew and how he basically says, look, we all, came, we all came from different parts of Africa and you can think of it as all of us kind of being put into a stew. But then you see at the end, there's some carrots left, there's some... I don't know if he said broccoli left or something else, but he said there's a couple other pieces there. And he said, unfortunately, that's what we are. We get the leftovers. And I I had a little trouble tracking the metaphor the first time, because like I said, it's uh, sometimes uh, this stuff can go on for a long time and you got to like kind of really focus on it to like kind of get it down again. But then the more I thought about it, I thought that monologue in particular kind of encapsulated everything the movie was trying to say, because I mean, it feels like what he's saying is, look, all these black people have come up from all over. They've had their own struggles to create their own culture and the white people take from it. And that's, that's the metaphor throughout the entire movie. And it's brought up so many different times. The, I mean, like it, when they walk into the store, it's, it's kind of brought into attention and it, that's the visual element of the movie that I really thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, when you say when they come to the studio, I guess, do you mean specifically with respect to how those white characters are interacting with them, or are you thinking of something else? Well, no, I'm, I, what I was saying actually when they went to the store, so there, there's actually there's four different moments of the movie where they sort of bring oh, did, up or did the you mean the deli? Or did you mean the deli when you say store? The deli, oh, the okay, deli gotcha, gotcha, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there, there's four different moments where you really see the the dichotomy between, you know, white culture and black culture. It's when Ma Rainey walks down the hotel store uh, stairs and then right. everybody's staring at her and then she gets into the car. The police officer is accusing her, um, even though she's, you know, standing up, standing for her own. And then the um, the manager has to basically pay him off in order to get him to, to drop the complaint. It's in the studio when she's trying to insist on having her nephew um, do the introduction for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which at the end of the day didn't even matter because they didn't record it. And then it's at the end of the movie where um, – and, and I'll actually – I'll give you a little trivia fact that I don't think you know, and very few people will actually notice this. At the end of the movie where the um, the white band is playing uh, Levy's song. Oh, I knew that. No, but you, what you didn't know wait, 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 don't the know guy you. who's singing the song. Oh, I thought you were saying that. I thought you were saying the trivia fact was that they were playing his song. Oh, okay. no, yeah. no, you were setting no, up. You were, set, you were setting up. You were setting up your point. I was like, wait, that's I'm pretty obvious. Up my point. No. Okay, well, what is so, the? Sorry, what is the trivia? <laughs> so a lot of people don't know that the August Wilson Theater is a theater in New York where, for many years, Jersey Boys was performed, which is ironically, it's it is like the whitest show on Broadway. Yes. <laughs> the guy who sang that song at the end of the movie played Bob Gaudio for many years in Jersey Boys on Broadway. Oh. I saw him. I literally have the playbill with his picture on it. Interesting. So that's a fun little trivia fact that you probably wouldn't have found out from IMDb. Yeah, I mean, it, it's such a great ending too uh, to the movie. Uh, I mean, it, the mom was right the entire time. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it, it really. I mean, from the moment that he's writing those songs, in my head, I'm like, oh, he's going to steal those songs, and. He doesn't get the song stolen from him, but he gets ripped off with the, oh, here's $5, here's $5, that's all I'm going to give you. So the guy, he's not he's not so blatant about it, but at the same time, uh, he obviously makes use of it in um, in some other way. And I, it's just like from the moment those white people come on screen, 
I'm just like, oh, wow, like, when, when are they going to be awful? And I, I, th- I thought it was pretty smart because in a lot of these musical biopics, the white music manager is just ends up being straight up evil in some in, in any number of kinds of ways. And the guy that plays Ma Rainey's manager is a guy named Irvin. And Irvin seems like super nice by any white person's 1920 standards, especially in a city that has a history of racism as Chicago does. And you're like waiting for the other shoe to drop with him like the entire time. And it never so explicitly does so, but you have a moment where Ma is talking about him and says, he's been my manager for six years, never invited me over to his house unless he wants me to play music for one of his friends. And Mm -hmm. I think even more specifically, I think she says the line, you colored and you make him some money, then all you, then, then you all write with them. Otherwise you're just a dog in an alley. And I think that said a lot because it was kind of, interesting way of upending your expectations in that you're always expecting these white music managers to be evil and you've seen them be evil in far in movies set in far more modern times born i mean perfect example of a callback that we did together oh yeah yeah it's not even necessarily limited to movies in which the in which the uh music manager is white and the artist is black that's for sure uh music managers are just often the heels in movies for one reason or another the guy in a star is born i mean basically drives our hero to suicide so uh, yep. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all, they can all be bad in their own ways, but I just thought this one was such an interesting way of doing it that felt unique in that he, he almost seems nicer than any other music manager you've ever seen in any of these movies in a time where people were far more overt with their racism, except it's like far more insidious than that because he just puts on this friendly face, uh, while at the same time would never see, be seen dead, uh, socializing with this woman in any way other than like in a transactional relationship where he's profiting. So I thought it was just like a very smart way of, uh, depicting a character who has, uh, become a very common type of trope in movies. And, and and the truth is, it is a very, very big metaphor for what we're seeing in the music industry these days and basically showing how when there's a position of power that people ho- have over other people, they're going to, you know, be as kind as honey, um, even while they're stabbing them in the back. And, and the truth is that Ma called it from the beginning of the movie. I mean, her her hardness and her stubbornness has a point. She's created a shell for herself, and that shell was just so beautifully transformed by Viola Davis. I mean, I I, re- I read that she has ha- had hesitancy about playing this role, and I can't understand for the life of me why because she was just absolutely magnificent. I will I love watching her in everything. She was great in Fences. She's great in this movie. I mean, even How to Get Away with Murder. I love watching her. Well, I've never watched that, but I can tell you why I think she might have might have been apprehensive to play the role because it's like it's one it's which i enjoyed most about is that it felt far different from anything she's ever done so maybe it was just simply outside of her comfort zone in that respect based on the kind of character it is and that you know even in fences which is another august wilson production what wins her the oscar in that movie basically is that she is like so quiet and keeps everything you know uh internalized throughout all the whole movie until she kind of erupts in her oscar winning speech at the end so that's a much different kind of character than one and the same thing in the help which is a movie that has its own you know problems and she's spoken about that on the record but the fact is she plays the maid which keeps who keeps everything really internalized and uh 
and and bundled up the whole movie in here i mean it's just a far more broad performance but even more importantly i mean it's a very it's a it's a specific kind of broad performance on the outside in which she has to go undergo like a whole physical transformation uh she's wearing some other kind of bodysuit that makes her appear heavier heavy heavy makeup the gold she did gain weight for that role though i, I did read that she uh, she I, was almost 200 pounds oh wow um, I, 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 and she's slimmed down significantly for the upcoming uh movies that she's doing for i believe the marvel universe she's doing it well, for no, i sure. think she's coming back DC in those DC, DC movies as yeah. the, the suicide squad leader um, i think it's potentially a, yeah, yeah. Waller or whatever but i i think I, i'd read somewhere it was a fat suit either way it, it between that and the gold teeth and the heavy eye makeup and just the general demeanor it could easily feel like a caricature which was something that something else that i had wanted to ask you is and you've already talked about what you thought about that character a little bit but i was curious did you feel like uh it did a really good job of establishing her as a character because i mean i saw i mean it's gotten very good reviews but i I, there's one reputable critic i know uh i know of named angela bastian of vulture who said that angelica bastian i think's her name and was actually kind of critical of the movie and they felt like they made ma out to be more of a caricature than a character and I, i i would actually disagree with that and i was just curious it seems like you were very impressed with that character and the performance overall I, I think I, I definitely was because number one, they're basing it off of a real person. So it can't be a caricature if you know somebody is representing on paper somebody who existed in real life. Number one. Number two, you can hear through the music, you know, the power of, you know, of her struggle and of her having to overcome that and creating sort of that that shell, that protection for herself, which she has through her voice. Her voice is what has gets her through. And it's not soft as honey, it's gruff. It it has feeling and it has power. And even though Viola Davis is not the one who's, you know, actually singing, what she does is she brings through her her physicality, through her facial expressions, just how tired she is of people walking over her and how she's just developed the perfect mentality and the perfect mechanism in order to just get people to bend over backwards, even at the end of the movie where they're trying to say that she has to pay her nephew through her own salary. And she comes over there. She's like, you will never have another record for me if you pay for my salary. And then you have the manager coming, you know, with, with the producer, like apologizing, of course, of course, of course here, she, she does that. And, and it is in contrast to the other roles that she's played. And I think one of the reasons why she was also probably hesitant of taking the roles because she doesn't want to be in another Denzel, you know, Washington produced movie that, done by August Wilson. But why? 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 why, 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 Oh, she actually said that. I I I don't know. I don't don't know why you wouldn't want to be. I mean, like, I mean, Fences was fairly well received. This movie's even been, I think, received even better uh, reviews than Fences. I would think it seems like. But I mean, uh, I I like this. I I think it's so different than Fences. Fences is the one that won the Pulitzer Mm -hmm. um, between the two of these. But truthfully, honestly, when I think of a, a role that you know, has to transcend the generations. Ma Rainey lived, you know, almost a hundred years ago. I think that somebody like Viola Davis should be the person bringing it to the screen just because she has a power in the way that she just can convey very few words because she can convey songs, she can convey physicality and she can convey just, you know, the, the very, very important stories that need to be told. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. And I, I again, I, I like the performance. I think it's a cool, a misdirect maybe where the character appears one way for a lot of the movie, especially to people like me who really didn't know a lot about her beyond the fact that she was a real life blues singer. I knew nothing else going in. So it's kind of cool to see her have this kind of persona going in. And I guess eventually you learn it's a kind of front that she has learned. It can 
uh, helper as some kind of survival mechanism in this business. But it's really cool how she uh, comes off as this diva that's you know bossing everyone around and uh and just is very brash and abrasive and can be off-putting and uh i like how then all of a sudden you learn in the second half of that movie that there's a lot more going on that meets the eye and she we already talked about her insights just about the business and about these white people that she's surrounded by but also just that you know well i think i think it's actually the cutler character that kind of even points out that she doesn't even have as much power as a lot of the rest of them think she does but she at least knows how to operate in the best way possible given that and i think she's an interesting uh, mechanism by which just to show that and because again we're already talking about how a lot of these themes are just very timeless and and in the, the way that a lot of this art is appropriated and i think it's pretty cool that like a performance like this that is as unique and uh, depicting as uh, unique of a figure as Ma Rainey is able to uh, like and with events that you said like you said occurred over 100 years ago that is able to be the template by which people in 2020 who can see all these different issues that are still prevalent today uh, persisting way back when and I, I I think she's a really good mechanism for that and we haven't even talked about most of the rest of the characters in the movie, but I think it's kind of cool to give her her due because, you know, it's interesting that she looms over this movie when she is, in fact, a supporting character, and it's kind of cool that she has, she leaves that kind of mark on it, even if the movie really focuses on all the men a little bit more. For sure, and if if you really think about it, um, these are, you know, four stories that, you know, 93 years ago when this, um, this play slash movie was taking place are still very important stories to tell today. Number one, the struggle of, you know, the producers taking over and trying to, you know, quelch the voice of the, of the artist and trying to take advantage of them. Number two, a, a black person who is living in a white world. Number three, a woman living in a man's world. And number four, a queer woman having to overcome every other obstacle, which with people just staring her down and her having to even hide herself, who she really is just walking down the stairs of her own hotel that um i mean even to the point where she might have been one of the more famous you know singers of that era she still probably had to hide a a bit of who she is which is just the antithesis of everything that we we want for her we want her to be true to herself and that's what we love you know love watching her succeed on the screen and, and you know tell everybody just how it's going to be not how she wants it how it's going to be and that's just the way that it is yeah you know you mentioned that uh she's a queer woman and there's not even a whole lot of that her at least on her wikipedia page uh it's hinted at a there's little bit one like one line <laughs> Right. And like that review I read was kind of critical in that it thought it didn't explore that more. But my thought being that like this is the 1920s in a public space, uh, the whole play is set in this public space. How how much can you necessarily go into that if you're realistically going to set it in this place around a bunch of people that she's doesn't isn't going to want to have know that about her? I, I can see how, again, it's a play. You can have an you can have a scene where it's just the two of them and she can she can talk to her. Uh, she can talk to her love interest a little bit more about it. But I think it it still works in the way that they do work it in there and that you you at least know that about her and then you can you could think about how that might have informed even more about how she uh curated her public persona based on again having to hide herself and having unfortunately probably uh internalized a lot of her feelings because she's having to hide who she is and just how difficult it is could have just led to her even having a more rough exterior that we obviously spend so much of the movie with yeah, and of course, I think it's even like doubly difficult because the Dusty May character, who is her, you know, female love interest, at the end of the day, you can see that she's just, you know, 
there for the ride. You know, she's not just necessarily there because she is queer herself or that she, you know, likes Ma Rainey. She likes what Ma Rainey has to offer to her and even, you know, has an affair with Lovey in the middle of the movie. It's hinted at at the beginning of the movie. Should add that uh, Dusty May is played by Taylor Page. She's a little bit of a newcomer, but she's going to be in the movie next year, Zola, that has gotten a lot of uh, attention as like an up and coming indie movie about this Twitter thread about two strippers that kind of went on a big adventure. Uh, So she's going to be like a pretty known commodity in 2021 i should i just wanted to add that because i I listed most of the other names of the actors but uh sorry oh yeah i i definitely see a future for her i mean like talking about people whose you know whose physicality and whose facial expressions just really you know tell um you know tell tell the tale that they have to tell is that dusty may probably has her own struggles and she needs to you know have her own sense of agency and when you have you know somebody like a ma rainey that comes around you're not going to give up that opportunity is that right for ma rainey no that's the point mm-hmm. that she can't even you know have her own love interest in you know the gender that she prefers without having that person you know just want her for her money or want her to buy new shoes for sure I, it's kind of incredible we've gone a half an hour and we've said chadwick Boseman's name like twice I know because uh, I, I'm like I almost don't want to talk about it because I'm still so sad. Do you think you can make it through the rest of the podcast if we're going to talk about him? Uh, uh, I only cried once watching the movie yesterday. So we we can edit around it if 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 you if you struggle at all. But we got to talk about Chadwick Boseman because this is actually probably his movie more so than anyone else. Uh, and I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad we gave uh, Viola Davis her due. But it's interesting that uh, it's called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I should say the song that they spend the whole movie trying to record on successfully it, it is called ma rainey's black bottom the title character is ma rainey but more so than anyone uh, chadwick boseman's levy has more screen time than anyone else which is it, it's kind of crazy because uh obviously unfortunately at the time of his tragic passing we learned just the insanity with that being the, we learned the insane fact that he basically hid his cancer from everyone so uh one it's not just it's not even like he uh just did like some average you know I don't know, run of the mill, not so, uh, not so strenuous type of role for his last role. He did one where he's basically going all out with like these massive monologues. It's a very physical performance where he's having to really be loud and expressive and have a lot of energy. Uh, so it's kind of crazy that in hindsight, we didn't, they didn't know it was going to be his last movie as he was doing it, but it's, it's kind of fitting. Cause I think it's one that could very well win him an Oscar. And I think you can make arguments that it might be his best performance. Uh, I, I won't judge you if you did, but I will encourage you too if you haven't. Did you watch The Five Bloods? Not yet. I, I know. I So let me explain to you this. Yeah. Once I found out that he died, I was so afraid of watching the other movies because I know that he's going to be so good that I'm going to be so pissed that he's dead. Fair enough. Uh, I, I, what, what I said when the, when the Five Bloods came out was that I thought it actually was his, the best movie role I'd seen him in. I don't think I'd actually – I went back and watched Get On Up after he died when he he was great when he played james brown i I, he was really great i I was a little i was a little cooler on the movie itself but he was really good in it and i yeah the movie itself wasn't great but his performance as james brown was spot on and his singing is is amazing yeah so i I, and that was one where he well i I, did he actually sing or i think he might have lip sing uh but he he, might have lip sync there but but in marion's black bottom he was definitely singing yeah, and in yeah, and in uh, but I mean, he got all the body language right in Get On Up, and mm-hmm. it was a very expressive role. Whereas, like, we, he's most beloved for Black Panther, but the fact is, and I said this, I think when I did a even either in that podcast or in another podcast where I recommended people go back and watch The Five Bloods after he died, I said 
look, Black Panther is great, but he's asked to do a lot less than some of the other actors in that movie. You know, uh, I mean, you know, Michael B. Jordan is acting his ass off in Black Panther in a way that Chadwick Boseman just doesn't have to. He's the center of that movie. It's it's a beloved character, but he's not asked to be as expressive. He's a little bit more stoic and is a lead by example type of guy. So that, I, Black Panther was my favorite movie of 2018, but it's probably not his best showcase as an actor, which I think is probably what the five bloods was and or even like you know get on up which my point about get on up was that he is asked to do a lot more of the heavy lifting through that whole movie and he is super expressive in a way he isn't in black panther but it's just not a good movie whereas black panther is a great movie where he isn't asked to do as much but everyone around him is also giving great performances and i thought the five bloods kind of married the two where he and he's more of a supporting performer in the five bloods there's a chance he gets two oscar nominations this year one for supporting in that and one for lead in this but like he is great in that and that was a good movie and here he's great in something that's arguably a great movie so it's kind of cool that his career kind of built up to that and unfortunately this was his last movie but there's a chance that he kind of ended in like the best combination of like great performance great movie that he had ever actually done so i think that's really cool but it's also like a very different kind of movie where it's like he's doing like a very different kind of acting than we've ever seen him do before well yeah he really turned into james brown and but like he spends a lot of that movie just like going all out with the performances whereas here he's like giving even longer monologues and acting his tail off yeah and and i think that this is also just a very fitting last performance for him for multiple reasons number one he got to work with denzel washington who as you know many people ended up finding out later on denzel paid for a full you know summer tuition for the british academy of dramatic acting for him and Denzel also gave him like a lot of mentorship. Not was it for him years. or was it for like a program that like covered other program. students, including him? Yeah. yeah it yeah, covered yeah, other yeah. students, including him, but how ironic. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. How, how fitting. Right. And on top of that, Denzel ended up convincing him to marry, um, his, you know, wife, which was something that he you know, didn't do for many years. That happened in like the last year of his life, right? Happened the last yeah. year of his life. It happened a couple months before he died. Oh, wow. And then on top of everything, what you mentioned with the physicality of the performance, what gets me on top of everything is number one just you can see how much weight he had lost and and that kind of crushes you a little bit watching that i didn't actually totally notice that i mean he he obviously is like maybe not as cut as he had to be for black panther but that didn't actually jump out to me Oh, no, that was it okay, definitely really? jumped out to me because of how cut he was during Black Panther. Oh. Um, and and I think on, on top of that, apparently he was undergoing, you know, chemo and radiotherapy during the filming of this movie. So having to do all that while still, you know, coming with such like a magnanimous performance with with beautiful monologues and, and really just powerful, powerful scenes that he just completely steals away from anybody else. Like he just he glistens on yeah. there. It's and funny. I think, Obviously, you have to like exert a lot for black panther but for a lot of that he's wearing the mask in theory like this is, you could almost make the argument making a movie like this going through what he was going physically might in some ways be harder than even than making black panther 100 percent harder yeah. than i i think that this is probably well, and a lot of black panther's taking place in like a green screen and like you know yeah. it's like they're it's in a much different Sun setting doubles. than like having to like work on a like a set all day giving these massive speeches as opposed to like hey you could probably have a body double doing a lot of that wearing a mask exactly and and it's it's you can have a body double you can have a stunt double just you know really performing those scenes for you but but this in particular i think that this really just he he stole the show and and truthfully i don't know of any other performance i'd have to see obviously when the nominations come out i don't know of any other performance that really has kind of stood out as much as his this year um there's you know a couple that come to mind um i'm gonna say vigo mortensen not vigo mortensen who am i thinking of which movie shoot 
the wishful drinking. Wait, wait, wishful drinking? I've not seen that movie. I don't even know uh, what that it, is. What's it called? Wishful drinking. Okay, you can edit this out. What's the name okay. of this guy? Uh, the guy who played Hannibal. Oh, Anthony Hopkins is in The Father. Not Anthony Hopkins. Well, Anthony played- Anthony Anthony Hopkins was Hannibal. Or, oh, Matt. Oh, I've I've not seen that movie. Yeah, what's it called? I, I think I actually have Another seen him round. on some lists. That's what it's I called. actually have seen him on some lists, but I didn't really know what the movie was. So I, I didn't know that was already a movie that was out. So yeah, so so between you and me, it comes. It's on Prime Video. I've heard really good things about him, and a lot of people say that Mads Mikkelsen is probably going to take the Oscar this year. Um, l- listen, the last thing that anybody wants to do is for somebody to win an Oscar just because they passed away. I feel like that's sort of like is in a way it's it's not a, a very good. Um, tribute to them but i think if anybody deserves an academy award or at least a lifetime achievement award something to just really show like the impact that they made on film it has to be chadwick boseman because he's just brought so many real characters to life over his you know his lifetime beyond jackie robinson beyond james brown like he he brought the role of a king and really just created um almost like an empire of of passion and of um representativeness um for the black community i think that that deserves you know some recognition whether or not it's for this role i don't know but i think that he really this was just a fitting last role for him it was full of emotion at the end where you know he is left with an impossible situation um it just he kind of, he pulled at my heartstrings. I cried. I mean, I just, I straight up cried at the end because how, how sad is it that he ends his film career, you know, murdering somebody in cold blood just because he scuffed his nice yellow shoes, which are by the way, very nice yellow well, shoes. That, that was a very crushing part of the movie though. I also kind of liked that it went there in a way because it gave him a chance to play like a really different kind of character. You know, uh, again, I'll encourage you to watch the five bloods as hard as it might be, at least before the Oscars, because I, I think he, it, it, it was a very, again, that was a very different kind of performance from him. And he's playing like a very honorable person. He's playing a soldier that a lot of his fellow soldiers really look up to. And he's giving all these inspirational speeches throughout it or heartfelt, uh, passionate speeches throughout it. And it felt like a different side of him, but he's again, for someone very honorable, just as I, and I actually, the one of his, I still haven't seen after having watched get on up is the Thurgood Marshall movie, which I guess it got tepid reviews. Didn't make a lot of money. I'll still watch it, but Thurgood Marshall, obviously a very, honorable figure in American history and yeah. James Brown more complicated. He captured him well, but I think Levy is different from James Brown in that like, while both might be pretty flawed, uh, Levy's flawed in a different way where he's talking a lot of sense for a lot of the movie and a lot of what he's saying you, you might agree with though. He's also has like a, a fairly uh, maybe sinister flawed side at the same time that gets to come out and has a lot of issues. And that felt like a darker side, darker part of a character than he had ever really gotten to play. So I kind of like that for him getting to sink his teeth into something like that at the same time it's so funny because his i mean this is going to be the the dumbest metaphor ever but Mm. this entire his entire performance is almost synonymous with you know the term when the levy breaks Mm. um because at the end of the movie he just he breaks he he just everything floods through like he has you know a very you know tough collective exterior throughout the entire movie. He has these big dreams, these big ideas. And for all intents and purposes, you know, people are listening to him and at the end, nothing matters. And, and, you know, he should have just 
versus trying to be an antagonist to Ma. He should have embraced her, her teaching. She's clearly older than him. She clearly has, you know, had the experience in the industry, especially, you know, in, in an industry dominated by, um, you know, by, by white people. Um, he should have just, you know, had that insight. And at the end, when everything came crushing down on him, he just broke. Well, and also he, he, he mentioned looking up to Ma and following her week. Cause she obviously did very well for a black person in those times. Uh, He's also clashing throughout this movie with the other band members, who we haven't talked about a ton yet. But the fact is, like, he is probably half their age, or at least the character he's playing is half the age of mm-hmm. a lot of these guys. And it's like, yeah, you might not want to, like, sit in your place like these guys are telling you to, but at the same time, you could probably learn a little bit from them because you probably have plenty of time to go start your own band uh and like given the fact that you're already at a point in your career where all these where you're at an you're equal basically with all these other older guys so i mean the fact is it's not like you're going to be stuck there forever if because he is so young so uh again a lot of what he's saying makes sense in the way that a lot of the white people are trying to take advantage of him but he's also he's also proven to be kind of naive in how he gets taken for a ride by the record executive and as are most young people and it's it's still a story that is told today is like the naivete of not having the wrinkles and not having the rings around your you know your skin to have the knowledge and the experience to know how people can act you know and you know as somebody who's in a business industry even at 28 years old even though i can you know, lead a conversation with people who are twice my age, I still know that I have a lot to learn. And I think that this is something that as the generations pass is less and less of a struggle for young people. You know, Gen Z right now is having, you know, more of a, of a place in the conversation more than any other generation has before. But, you know, in the 1920s, you, you respect your elders, you respect the people who have, you know, the years and the, you know, the, the resume credits in order to really, know how it's going to be, especially when you're dealing in a situation where there's no equality for your, for your race. And I think that that's what the band really has to offer. The band is a foil. And in a sense, um, in a sense, you know, the, the different band members are a foil for him because, you know, he has all these big dreams and they probably did as, you know, once as well. And be, you know, because of that, they basically are trying to tell him, Hey, listen, you know, keep your head down, you know, keep your dreams alive. And, but at the same time, you still have many years to go. Um, and they, they sort of tease him at the beginning um, of the movie where he said, Hey, listen, the, the manager wants me to do my version of Marini's black bottom. This is how it goes. It's good. You know, it's a quick pace. It's a quick pace. Um, and at you know, one and a two and a three, and then, Everyone plays it in the slow and the um, almost like a sensual tone. And I don't know that much about music theory, but I'm sure that somebody out there who does, you know, can tell you the difference basically between the two of them having some, you know, metaphor for um, basically going to say youth Hmm. versus age. But it, it, it really gets kind of puts into perspective that he's got such a long time to, you know, go before he really comes into his own. But he throws that away at the end of the movie anyway. So, you know, with youth also comes impulsiveness and with impulsiveness comes bad decisions. Yeah, I also feel the need to shout out the the first big monologue he gives specifically uh, because, I mean, it's heavy stuff. Uh, I mean, I was talking about how it felt like a kind of a different type of performance than anything he's ever had to give. And uh, like I said, while James Brown was fairly expressive in a way that uh, the Levy character also is, you, you don't really get a moment from James Brown like you do Levy giving that speech about what happened to his family when he was eight years old. And 
one, it's just a very, very, on the surface, it's like a very, very, very horrific and heartbreaking story to hear him explain why he, why he feels the need to be as deferential to the white man as he is. And yeah. it's very heavy and it gives you a lot of context about who that character is. But at the same time, I thought about it, like, when I'm thinking back on him, like, so if these mo- the movie kind of centers around a lot of these different monologues, where does that one come from? And I feel like it actually is a piece with the rest of the movie in that you're hearing just uh, one of these horrific experiences. And I think it goes back to what we, what I was saying at the beginning, where it's like, that is just one of those experiences that goes into almost, I think, maybe I'm getting their metaphors wrong, but I took it as one of those many experiences that goes into that stew that uh toledo was talking about where all i mean all this different kind of culture and it's not just something that's limited to the blues necessarily and that like white people in certain ways like obviously appropriated every other kind of music from black people almost whether it be you know jazz or rock and roll or hip-hop in one way or another and here is some and a lot of art comes from like channeling your pain into something like that so uh all of this different kind of art that black people are creating throughout the 20th century it's largely informed by a lot of the horrific things that are happening to them all throughout the country often at the hands of the white men like we hear with respect to that uh, levy's family or the song the story that cutler tells about the priest all those kind of horrific things are the kind of pain that gets channeled into art from people of all races and uh, so much of that goes to like a lot of different things that black people have created and it's all go- goes back to the kind of thing that like just the white people end up profiting off of more than black people. And it's kind of heartbreaking when you just think of it in terms of, okay, here's one guy pouring his heart out and uh, he ends up like, you know, probably channeling a lot of that into his music and a lot of his music ends up getting stolen by the end of this movie. But it's not only that it gets stolen by the end of the movie is that when when chad wait when, sorry when when levy sings you know the same song that's sung at the end of the movie there's a there's a heart and there's a soul and there's feeling in the way that he sings that is completely lost when that 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 very very white band plays oh God, it they're so and white too it's like they, they I mean, were so white. it was very stark but like it was like it felt like the, it, was, it was like oh yeah it was like over the top almost how white they were but like it gets the point across <laughs> exactly and it's and really and that's really what was done actually for the most part with a lot of you know artists and writers in you know the 1920s that sort of changed in the 60s where it was kind of the opposite and um you know beautiful the carol king story the, the musical basically shows how carol king did a lot of writing for you know um you know, black four top or five top, you know, bands. Um, but what, what I found very interesting is, you know, and like, again, maybe this is kind of like a, is not only t- discussing the metaphor of the stupid, but the metaphor of like age versus youth is that Ma Rainey, Cutler, Toledo, and Slow Dog all have very similar stories probably to Levy does, but Levy feels that like he's an individual and because he feels that like he's alone in the world and that he's sort of, you know, his, his story stands alone it causes him to isolate himself from everybody else in the, in the movie. And that becomes his downfall when he feels that he can't relate to anybody and that he feels that he's almost like he, he has like special treatment in a way. It, it kind of goes to show you that what you need to do is you need to sort of stand, you know, together versus, you know, a, a tree that stands alone cannot be, um, you know, supported by the rest of the forest. Yeah. I think we've largely covered it. Is there any other aspect of this movie we haven't touched on that you'd like to discuss? Um, minus the fact that, you know, every monologue is pretty much Oscar bait. Um, no, <laughs> I, I, th- I think we, we discussed that. But I, I'm I'm hoping that at least if he doesn't get either a nomination or a win for this role, that they really um, 
And I know that the, the in memoriam uh, segment is going to be very, very lengthy next year, but at least he, he deserves some recognition that he, he never got in his life. I think you don't have to worry too much about him getting an Oscar nomination. That seems like it's a pretty odds on favorite. He, he might be the odds on favorite at this point. You definitely, they're not going to forget him in the in memoriam. Sometimes they forget people in the in memoriam. I don't get yeah. how that happens with how much time they prepare those things. I don't think you have to worry about Chadwick Boseman being uh, left no. out there. And, and I think, and I, and I, I also uh, do very much hope he uh, is recognized. I, again, there's, there's other performances I still haven't seen. I, I actually, since I pulled up, a, I pulled up like a, one of the Oscar prediction sites since we've been talking and I actually didn't notice, I didn't see the Maz Mickelson performance on there, but there's still a couple I haven't seen. Uh, Delroy Lindo is like the lead in the five bloods and he's really great in that. Uh, so you'll, you might have opinions on that after you finally muster up the courage to watch it. Uh, but, uh, Riz Ahmed sound of metal, which is on Amazon I prime. Heard that he's- Fantastic. I reckon I recommend that he's great in that. I haven't watched Minari yet. I'm really excited to see Steven Yoon in that because I thought he should have gotten an Oscar nomination and supporting actor for the South Korean movie Burning a couple years ago. And I haven't seen Anthony Hopkins yet. Speaking of Hannibal Lecter, but he's in a movie called The Father about a guy that has Alzheimer's. So speak, talking about Oscar bait, uh, definitely something there. So he's going to have some competition. Uh, but I am uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to the Oscars because I, I feel like they should. They should do right by him. I think it would be worthy even if he uh, hadn't died. But though, you know, this is how these things work. I'm sure it'll get a, garner a little more attention from voters because they, they know they won't have another chance to recognize him. So, yeah. Um, yeah what, uh, what I find so interesting is that there's been so much unique content out, um, you know, in this last year. Um, a lot of it bad. Um, most most of it OK. Um, very, very few of it good. What I what I sort of find and, you know, this is just like a criticism that I have just about, you know, the sheer amount of streaming services and, you know, competition for, you know, film and television that we have in this day and age. It's, it's really, really hard to find something that stands out that's original, that, um, you know, is a story that's never been told before. But at the same time, the beauty of this, you know, amount of film is that you have more of an opportunity to tell unique stories, important stories that otherwise weren't told with classical, you know, cinema. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, on the on the one hand hand, I, I kind of, you know, have a longing for you know, going to a movie and knowing that that movie is going to stand out versus seeing 10 movies and only finding one of them that really um, seems significant or, you know, legitimately um, something that I would preserve in, you know, the, the national, um, what's, what's it called? The National Film Institute? Archives. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha. Yeah, there's there's pretty much like I'm going to say like one in 10 films that I see in a year deserve to be like sort of preserved in the archives. Yeah. I think that this one definitely deserves that right um, because he's his performance, Viola Davis's performance, basically the cast as a whole just does such a fantastic job telling even though it's it's not a new story. It's an important story and it deserves to be told and it deserved to be portrayed in the way that it did. Well said. Maya, before we sign off, anything else you want to recommend you've been watching recently as we round the, come around the holidays? couple of things. So obviously, if, if no one's seen The Mandalorian, um, what are you doing? Please run. Don't, don't walk. <laughs> See it. I will say I but, finished The Mandalorian. Uh, I watched it. Well, I guess I, everyone finished it last week. I, I, I already finished it, too. I will say if anyone starts it and they get a little discouraged in the first half of the season, second half of the season more than makes up for it. The first half of the season, I would say wasn't as strong as season one and it got a little repetitive where it just felt like oh mando has to do a mission but someone's he needs someone to do something for him but they make him run do a mission first then he does the mission then he goes to the next place and then that person's like i'll help you if you do this and then he does that yeah it got a little repetitive but then like it gets like a full head of steam and like the last three to four episodes really kick ass so exactly. don't get discouraged if you feel like it's a little slow at the beginning because i mean the the second half is just as good if not better than season one 
And actually, you know, as a quick sidebar, true story, yeah. I actually met Pedro Pascal in the Aventura Mall in line to get popcorn a couple of years ago. One of the weirdest ways I've ever met anybody in my life because mm. I saw that this was before he was famous. It was um, we were watching. Well, he'd probably been on Game called, of Thrones at that point. I'm guessing he that, was on Game of Thrones it. at that yeah. point, but that was that was it. That was like his. Was, was he on Narcos yet? He was. He had just been cast in Narcos. Oh, he okay. had not actually starred in it. It was during the um, the Hateful Eight. Um, as you know, there's an intermission in the middle of the movie. So before the movie, I see this guy, and I just basically I see the back of his head. I'm like, I think he's a celebrity. Uh. My, my friend's like, you're crazy. You're crazy. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I think this guy's a celebrity. And he turns around. I'm like, that's Pedro Pascal. He's like, no. So I'm like, no, no. That's the Red Viper from Game of Thrones. I'm 100% positive. So I go up to this guy, like in the middle of the intermission, getting popcorn. I said, now, has anybody ever told you before that you look like Pedro Pascal? And his nephew goes, that's because he is. I'm just kidding. And I'm like, the guy and I just smile at each other. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to leave it at this because I, I know I'm right here. And sure enough, you know, later that day on Instagram, he posted a picture with that same kid. So, um, that's, that's a funny. funny. He's a, if, if I want to recommend a piece of quarantine content, uh, were, were you a community fan when community was Love on? community. Did yeah. you see the table read earlier this year that they did for charity? Heard, I, 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 read, I saw part of it. It was really freaking funny. So I, I highly recommend anyone that's a community fan go on and find the table read they did for charity earlier in the pandemic. And they did a season, uh, they did, they did a season six episode or a season five episode, uh, cause they had to do it cause Chevy Chase isn't really tight with them anymore. They had to do an episode where Pierce was gone and so they did the episode where they kind of read Pierce's will. And in that episode, they Walt, Walton Goggins plays the guy that comes in to read all Pierce's last wishes. Walton Goggins wasn't available for the table read. So Pedro Pascal filled in and he was like delightful in how much he loved listening to everyone else deliver their lines and had trouble not breaking at times. Just a highly entertaining piece of content that's available for everyone to enjoy on YouTube. So I highly recommend that. But I think you said one other thing you wanted to mention. Chef's table. What is that? I've. So, um, and, and on these, I had to bring up both of these because like I have personal stories with that. So chef's table is basically taking, you know, Michelin star chefs, you know, chefs of the, the top 50 best restaurants in the world. Um, and basically visually in a visually stimulating and beautiful way with like, you know, macro and micro lenses showing how they basically cultivate their art. And I can't describe the show as anything other than an artistic marvel. Hmm. So the reason why I started watching this is number one, you know, in the pandemic where you, you kind of are looking for things to do, you sort of, you know, get the inspiration to start cooking. So I've been cooking a lot during the pandemic and my boyfriend and I really wanted to watch like cooking shows. So I started with the great British bake off, you know, he and I are watching like barbecue you know, American barbecue, uh, cook off challenges. And then we finally come across chef's table. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was in Barcelona and one of my favorite restaurants in the entire world, if not my favorite, it's a restaurant called El Champagnet. Um, it's like in the little, in the middle of the Gothic, um, quarter, it's right across from the Picasso museum and they have like homemade kava. It's been passed down from generation to generation. And I see this, this camera crew at the restaurant with my mom and we're like, what the heck is going on? like, oh, they're filming for Chef's Table. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that show. I, I've never really seen it. Like, I think that it's just, you know, a, a nothing show. And sure enough, what they were filming was actually um, one of the top chefs in Barcelona and in, in Spain as a whole. He and his brother are like award-winning chefs. And they were just filming. It was a 15-second segment in the show. But that got me sort of inspired to take a, a glance at the show during the pandemic. And hmm. boy, I don't know what I've been missing the last couple of years. Wow. 
Well, that's a, a very unique recommendation. I'm, I'm, I've never been a huge like food content person, but I'm, I'm intrigued. But this is beyond that. This is like a guy. So one of the chefs, basically, um, he describes wanting people to, you know, fulfill their senses um, with with all of the elements. So he has like a nutmeg smelling pillow that is like steaming air up while he eats his like somebody eats his like petite dish. And he has things that are sort of like propelled from like the, the ceiling that as they come down, they're actually used during the meal. So things that are like really unique that you will, you'll never find in like a, in a McDonald's or like a normal restaurant, but it's sort of, it gets you traveling without leaving your, your house. So I, I highly recommend it. And now I'm, I know that I'm going to be spending thousands of dollars at some point <laughs> in the future to visit all these restaurants. Wow. Interesting. All right. Well, that's a, that's, that's a very good, unique recommendation. I'll just, I haven't watched a ton of stuff that isn't already been discussed on the pod in the last few days. So I'll, I'll, I'll recommend Michael Clayton, which, I mean, I'm sure it's a movie a lot of people know about, though it didn't make as much money as it should have at the time. It's the uh, 2007 movie starring uh, George Clooney about a fixer for a big-time law firm that has to navigate a lot of different crises, including a a big suit uh, involving a big environmental conglomerate and another attorney at his firm that's gone a little crazy in the midst of being the main guy on the case. It's a very hard movie to describe, but it really is a, a... fun vibe or i don't want to say fun vibe a tense vibe and atmosphere as this guy kind of navigates this corporate world and it's a really great george clooney performance as well as an oscar winning oscar winning performance from tilda swinton as the general counsel for the big environmental company who is really up to no good but it takes a while for everyone to figure out exactly what everyone's motivations are and it's just a great thriller and uh, uh written and directed by uh uh, Tony Gilroy and just movies of that nature, of that budget, with those kind of stars, don't get made a ton anymore, and it's really aged quite well, despite taking place right before we like had iPhones and stuff like that. It's just a, a really thrilling movie available on HBO Max. I highly recommend it. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I uh, Maya, thank you so much for joining. I Thanks really appreciate it. Me. I appreciate it as always. Uh, Maya's usually a blank slate and doesn't have anything to plug, so I'll plug and say. Uh, I'm Josh Chernovoy on both Twitter and Letterboxd, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y. The podcast Twitter is at RewindMoviePod. The email is the RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Uh, we might have a bunch of Oscar movies coming up to hopefully talk about if this stuff gets VOD releases, so I don't have a lot to say about exactly what's coming up next. We'll see as they come. Probably an episode on Wonder Woman 1984 and maybe followed by one on Soul. So we'll see about all that, but I want to thank everyone for listening. Thanks again to Maya for joining and we'll see you next time.